Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Adoption Adventures. Thank you, as always, for taking the time out to spend some quality time with me. Um, I attended a um, live launch event from PAC UK last week. Um, and I think there was something like 250 people that attended this um, this live launch event. Um, and... I knew that the subject matter was going to be around contact, but to be honest, I wasn't entirely um, sort of aware and sure on what any of the sort of like the, the details were were going to be for the for the session. So it transpires um, that Pack UK had um, worked in conjunction with um, some other agencies and other sort of partners in gathering um, some sort of user feedback um, and some sort of like genuine feedback from the adoption community. And from within that, they got feedback from adopters, adoptees, and birth families as well. Um, I think they had somewhere in the region of six, seven hundred um, responses to their survey, to their questionnaire, which I thought was really, really good because it just adds more weight and credibility to, to that information and intel. Um, and they were tracking back um, data. And they were asking people about sort of adoptions, sort of, as far back as like the 1960s, um, but they were were looking for sort of they were looking for historical data. But they were also looking for up to date data as well. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of um, sort of everything that they said in this report. I will put a link in the bio to the report because um, it's on the Pack UK um, website, which is PAC hyphen UK, um, just as you know their spelling. Um, but their report has been published and it's um, it's available to sort of like the public there. Um, but it was really an interesting conversation. Within the conversation, um, they also invited some guest speakers. So they gave feedback um, from adoptees um, and. The, the bulk of the research was looking around contact and identity. Um, and they first gave the feedback from adoptees. Um, adoptees were saying about contact. Um, and following that, they then invited three adult adoptees to talk and share their experiences, share their views and share their sort of um, reaction to the data uh, that had come through, which I thought was really interesting. Um, now, loads of, loads of information came from, from this. The biggest sort of things that I saw, um, some weren't shocking or surprising to me, um, others did sort of did get me thinking, which was really cool. Um, the things that adoptees were saying was sort of like really, really hammering home the importance of 
keeping in touch with their birth families and keeping those doors open um, for them, really, really helping with their sense of identity. Also how it then helps with sort of how they can then interact with their peers and within the world of education as well. Um, so more doors being left open really, really made for um, adoptees to feel more secure, more safe and more comfortable to talk about their identity, more comfortable to talk about their history, their past um, and sort of future as well. So really, really interesting, um, not unsurprising for me, but really, really good to sort of get that um, sort of reaffirmed as it were. Um, now, within the data, we saw that between the 70s and 80s, I think, and I might be wrong, it might be 60s and 70s, but I think it was the 70s and 80s, um, there were a lot more transracial adoptions occurring um, for a variety of reasons. But the feedback coming back from that was that adoptees were feeling really out of place and they found it um, one particular um, comment was it was really uncomfortable being the only brown person in my street in my neighborhood and in my town um, and they were really talking the adoptees were really talking about how transracial adoption can actually be really challenging and really difficult um, and can be quite can have quite a negative impact on identity. Um, now, as you know, I've, I've sort of, um, I've, I've banged the drum the other way quite a bit um, in the past um, and talked about sort of transracial adoption and, hey, if we aren't able to find a sort of um, a, a nationality connection, then we need to be looking at the, uh, uh, just a family that can, can meet those needs. But this this information, this this sort of intelligence, there is is it certainly helped me on my journey of understanding of this, um, of how difficult that must have been historically um, for young people growing up in a transracial adoption um, family, and how that must have been quite a challenge on their identities. Now, what I would imagine and assume is that there's a lot more thought and consideration going into transracial adoption and we are a much more sort of um, a, a broader sort of cultural country in the UK these days it's um, it's I don't imagine there's going to be many individuals that are feeling that way but I don't know because I am not I'm not a person of colour, therefore I don't know how that would feel. So I can't say emphatically, but I do feel that sort of cultures are improving and being being more sort of um, there's a broader scope of cultures, religions, beliefs across across the nation, which I think is is growing and it's getting better. So I imagine there are easier ways now to help with identity. But even then, like I said, it's really helped to open my eyes to realise that there must be major gaps and that must be really, really challenging. So I think, again, this comes back down 
doctors from BAME backgrounds to come forward um, because clearly that would be the sort of like the best best family um, for these children. So that was that was really interesting, and I was really really pleased to sort of like learn that and and sort of see how it could change my thinking as well. So I was really really excited to to learn about that and. As always, my journey will continue. Um, the next thing that we started talking about was um, birth families. Um, and we were talking about the sort of the data on contact from a birth family's perspective or first family's perspective. Um, and they launched quite a, a a discussion and conversation on the terminology of birth family um and there was some in individuals that just didn't feel comfortable with that language and and that that was interesting because it started a conversation i don't think that they a conclusion was or could have been met within that conversation but again it's just thinking about terminology and i know that as part of the modernizing adoption agenda this is something that is going going to be really, really looked at and, and considered. Um, so that, again, was good to sort of see that the conversation was happening. Um, what was what I found really, really interesting there was we then um, looked at um, sort of birth families, first families talking about the reason for um, for adoption. Um, and and what what had brought about those circumstances, and the sort of the biggest majority of um, individuals that responded said that the main reason um, in their family, the the two top reasons were um, suffering with um, domestic violence in the home um, and a risk factor to to the child or children. Um, and the other big one was um, poor mental health or ill mental health um, conditions. And I guess that there would be sort of like a deeper look into that. And again, I imagine it would be around being able to keep the children safe um, in that environment. Um, and as we sort of learned about this, again, what was great was the... Um, PAC UK had then organised three birth parents to come and share their views, their comments and their thoughts on the, the report that had come out. Um, it was really nice as well because there was a birth dad within the group. Um, so it was quite nice to actually get a, a sort of a bit of a broader spectrum there as well. Um, but one thing that, um, that this birth mum said, there was loads of really incredible feedback coming through. But one thing that really, really resonated with me was this, this birth mum said, you know, in, in most circumstances, if you talk to someone who is the victim of an abuse, so victim of domestic violence or something like that, they are seen as a victim and someone that, you know, you, you want to give as much help to as possible. Um, but she said, actually, the difference was 
that in, in her experience, it was actually used against her and other birth families. And it was almost, they, they felt that it was almost being used as a tool to say, this is just another reason why we have to take your children away from you. Um, and, and that sort of, um, that way of looking at it really did hit me. Um, it, it struck me because I hadn't thought of it that way. And I guess within that, it kind of, it kind of creates a sort of a deeper, deeper question really. Um, because it's obviously this is a this is a tough subject to sort of like to delve into but it, it raises the the bigger question of okay you're using this against um people that are already victims and are already in really really difficult situations and can't get themselves out of those situations at all um and now now it's being used against them to take away probably the only thing that they would see as a as a positive in their world um and i guess the the challenge there is social services have still got a duty of care they've got a duty of care to these children um we've got to look at and i wonder sort of I'd, I'd like to delve into what is done to try to sort of get these sort of parents out of those environments getting them away from the the challenging sort of um relationships they're in um but but again i don't know enough about this subject to sort of safely comment but what what i do know is is from stories that i've heard and sort of situations that i've heard there's going to be sort of victims of domestic abuse that just don't know how to escape those situations and even with the sort of like the worst sort of threat being hung over them still don't feel safe to be able to get out of it, feel, still don't feel like they can get out of it. Um, so I don't know what the solution is there, because of course social services have got to do their job. In as much as if a child is at risk, they need to remove that child from that risk. I'm hoping that in a lot of these situations, that social workers would have done everything in their power to convince the sort of the victim of the domestic violence to also come out of that home. And I guess they've got to use, <laughs> this is my own naivety maybe speaking, but I would have assumed that they would have needed to evidence that they have tried to get that individual to sort of get out of that relationship to keep the child safe and that that individual isn't in a position to be able to do so. Um, like I say, this is my naivety because I don't know what happens in that situation. I don't know what the regulations are and I don't know how hard social workers are fighting for um, the victims of domestic violence. I, I just don't know. So I don't feel comfortable and confident to, to comment on that. But it did really, really hit me 
about the the flipping of the narrative from turning from you know a victim of domestic violence to this is now going to be used against you instead of keeping you safe we're going to take something away from you um, and this will be what sort of builds the evidence as to why you can't look after your child safely um, which must must do all kinds of a number um, and like I said I can't I can't delve much deeper into it because it's it's not it's not my place to but I'd love to learn more about this and, and sort of understand more about what what sort of situation that looks like and and what's done to sort of the stepping stones before that point um so yeah that, that really really did get me thinking um and the next point that sort of came up was um about sort of contact more mo mostly in the shape of letterbox contact um and it was really interesting to see that as the years progressed um the contact became less and less consistent um and those sort of contact agreements just kind of fizzled out and i think if i remember correctly it was more from from the adopter's perspective that that contact was fizzling out and stopping um and one of the birth parents spoke about this and said you know when when a birth parent is struggling with their mental health um which you know again was a was a big factor um when they receive those letters in a timely fashion it really helps to settle them but as soon as those letters are late or inconsistent or sort of lacking in information it really um hits and sort of um has a real negative impact on their mental health and when i heard that of course it's not a shock to hear that but i hadn't really thought of it from that perspective we've always like I've, I've said in the past we've always been good with our sort of communication with little dudes um mum and always kept that up but i'd never really thought about the the various impacts on those letters not arriving um i guess again i'm going to say from a naive perspective but a positive naivety because we've always been pro contact and pro keeping in touch we've had no need to think about oh what would happen if we didn't do this um we've always just been happy to continue it um and it, yeah it just it really resonated with me all of the sort of the different impacts that can be had from positive contact and indeed negative contact um as always i find it really really sad when i hear that sort of um con contact is either slowing down or stopping um i find it particularly frustrating when i hear that it's stopped because of um adopters choosing to stop it now i've I've understood in um, in situations when it's a case of um, it's it's stopped because the 
adoptee has specifically um, asked for that to stop. Um, I, I, you know, I think that we need to work really, really hard to to push back and um, and and make sure that those decisions are right. And actually, are we doing anything else to kind of encourage different ways to maintain that? Um, but yeah, I think when I hear that adopters are, are sort of not keeping up with contact, I think we need to be pushing back and asking why. Um, some of the sort of the, the rounding up on this, some of the key findings, and, and you can find this, like I say, you can find this on the website. It's um, pac-uk.org. And it was the big consult. Um, but the key findings, and I'm reading from their website, um, over 70% of adopted people state uh, that there is not information about why they were adopted and about their birth families. 85% of adopted people had attempted contact with birth parents after reaching 18, and 92% were glad that they attempted contact. 76% of adopted people said that direct contact with birth parents should be standard practice. That's a massive, massive number. I think that's really exciting. And I think that needs to be hitting the hardest in our brains. That is adoptees letting us know that is what they want. They want that door to be open and it's not about us. Um, I was learning about the Australian model of contact um, and I understand that there's a lot of sort of like joint work at the moment and looking at, at the Australian model and I've not delved into it, but from what I can understand, direct contact with birth family is the norm in Australia, irrelevant of the past and the backgrounds and experiences, even if the trauma has been quite extreme, the adoption agencies are still promoting direct contact and the research apparently coming out is that this has been really positive. Now, I'm going from a conversation I had very briefly in a room with a group of professionals and I didn't get to go deeper into that. So that's as much as I can give you there, but direct contact it's 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 coming it's it's going to be more and more prevalent i think um 90 of adopted people feel that adoption should be more open um yeah 77 percent of adopted people access mental health support as an adult not not surprising uh 50 percent of birth parents cite mental health issues as a main factor in a child's removal and 84 percent of birth parents have mental health issues currently so again massive massive um sort of understanding needed there on mental health and the impact of mental health i think we are getting better but it, it needs to be done more um only 12 percent of birth parents received letterbox letters from children for six years or more i mean that I think is really, really painful to read. Um, that's just not good enough. And I know that there's going to be sort of deeper meaning and, and reasons and, and, and all of those things, but only 12%. That's, yeah, it's not, that's not where it needs to be. 62% of birth parents had contact with children when they were over 18 as adults. Um, so, yeah. 
like I say, you you can um, you, you can head over to the site and have a look for yourself. It's a real real interesting read. Um, I was so thrilled to to be able to sort of get on the call, get into the console, and, and hear about this. Um, it was really really interesting. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd um, share some of the findings, share my thoughts, um, and sort of recommend that you go and have a look yourself. Um, but yeah, have a have a look, um, and uh, and let me know what you think. Um, if any of the sort of like points, topics, or anything that I've brought up that have sort of raised any questions or anything with yourself, let me know. Um, I, I hope that I've handled. Um, sort of some of those topics with delicacy and I hope you understand there are some subjects I don't know nearly enough about um, to be able to delve too deeply into it so I kind of sort of like skimmed the surface of some of those topics um, but again if if I've sort of gone down the wrong way do do let me know um, I'm, I'm always trying to be as sensitive as I possibly can um, as always, thank you so, so much for tuning in, having a listen. It's uh, it's always lovely to, to speak to you all. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again soon.